We are in the middle of a series of conversations where we're addressing kind of how you take next steps and what you do to long-term advance spiritually. How do you take advantage of what God is doing around you and your family and you personally in this community? How do you experience all that he has for you? You need a game plan. You need to know some habits, some themes, some steps that you can take to take advantage of all that God is offering you. And we're going over a series of habits, a series of practices, really a series of ways of thinking that will help form the core of the game plan for you, and they should. And today is a very, very important one. We're going to look at a compelling section of Scripture. The prophet Amos is this little prophet in the Old Testament, and we're going to kind of give you a flavor for what Amos says overall, and we're going to do that just by dipping into a couple of passages. So we're going to look first at chapter 2, and then we're going to look at chapter 5, and I, I really want you to hear, we need to hear what the prophet Amos says today. So I'm reading from Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. You'll find it on mygateway.life. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look. It's also on the screen. This is Amos chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God. They drink the wine of those who have been fined. Okay, now chapter 5, and at the end of chapter 5, he kind of goes off a little bit. This is when Amos tees off. So if you would, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word, and I'm going to read chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. Amos 5, 18 through 24. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. The day of the Lord was a familiar phrase to them that was a description of the time of God's coming in powerful ways. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into his house and leaned his hand against the wall. Maybe he gets out of a storm, but a serpent bit him. He goes from the frying pan into the fire. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? How can that be? It's because of these transgressions that God will not revoke the punishment from. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the, the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Father, we confess this morning that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves and especially the neediest of our neighbors. We confess that we live really insulated lives. And we confess that we haven't really 
considered all of the consequences of that. We just kind of go from one thing to another and we consume a lot. And we collect and store. And we spend a lot of our energy taking care of what we've collected and stored. And you've called us to something bigger and better and brighter and holier. And I pray today, Lord, that these wouldn't just be words. I pray that you would open up our hearts and massage this truth into our chests. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you had to make a list of things that are most important to God, what would you put on that list? And if you you had to rank the list according to what was absolutely most important, what would be at the top for you? Our topic today is definitely in the top five. And it might be in the top two. And you and I cannot build a healthy spiritual connection without attending to this theme in our lives. We must make it a part of our game plan to open our lives to people in need. This is one of our habits. It's critical. Open our lives to people in need. Okay, I want to give you the context of Amos' teaching. Show the map, if you would, Dean. Try to identify kind of middle, upper, kingdom of Israel in all caps. That's where we're talking about. That's where Amos went. You can see the star underneath it, the capital, Samaria, There's Shechem and Jaffa over on the coast. If you go below that, you see the kingdom of Judah. This is the territory that's involved historically in Amos' prophecy. And those out to the east, kingdom of Aram and Ammon and Moab, even Edom, those would have been the kinds of people who would have historically been nibbling at Israel's territory or at their riches and Judah as well at times. Okay, the passage from Amos was written in the middle of the 8th century B.C. That's 800 years before Jesus. Amos was a shepherd and a farmer from that southern kingdom, from the kingdom of Judah. Here's the thing. Judah and Israel, those two kingdoms, they were populated both by descendants of the people that Moses led out of Egypt. In other words, they were both Jewish by heritage and culture, and they had been united as one nation under the rule of Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. But they had separated during a violent civil war that happened after Solomon's death. And during the subsequent years following that civil war, they were sometimes allies, more often bitter enemies. During the period of Amos' preaching, Jeroboam II was king of Israel. And his reign lasted from 788 B.C. to 748 B.C. Now, During the early years of Jeroboam's reign, the nation of Israel was in a period of economic growth and expansion. In the previous century, before Jeroboam, Israel had been attacked, her borders had shrunk, her economy had shriveled, but under Jeroboam II, she expanded to include more than her original territory, and the economy was growing rapidly, so these were boon years. But the second half of Jeroboam's reign was not as successful. Israel's territory was constantly threatened. Decline and recession were in full swing. And as conditions grew worse, the economic gap between the ruling elite class and everyone else grew larger and larger and larger. Plus, there was rampant spiritual decay in the land. Into that political and social and spiritual climate of decay, God sent Not an elite priest, but a a blue-collar country bumpkin Judahite to speak to the palaces of power in Israel. 
Now, Amos shared a language with the Israelites, and in theory, they both worshipped Yahweh, but that theory was far from reality. There were actually rampant worshipping of other gods in the nation of Israel, sometimes in Judah as well, but almost constantly in the northern kingdom in Israel. So Amos felt called by God to announce God's dissatisfaction with the northern kingdom. He told them that judgment was coming if they didn't change their hearts and their ways and turn back to God. And as you might imagine, this was not an extremely well-received message. We should note that after the reign of Jeroboam, Israel slid, this is important, that the country of Israel slid, slid shockingly, quickly, and irretrievably to her demise. It was, in fact, completely unexpected. Unexpected unless you had read or heard Amos's prophecy. But within 30 years after Jeroboam, in 722 BC, the country of Israel was overrun and utterly destroyed by the Assyrians. This is one of the reasons that Amos made its way into the sacred writings, and we still read it today because he was right. Now, if you read the book of Amos, you'll see that he began his speaking tour by preaching against the nation surrounding Israel. This would have played well to the audience. But pretty quickly, he turned his attention to Israel itself. And in 2, 6 through 8, the passage that I read, Amos denounced them for three things. Did you catch it as we went through? First of all, mistreating the poor. Secondly, weird perversions of romantic and sexual relationships, which I hope went over your head. And third, idolatry. Sounds like America. But the real emphasis throughout Amos' teaching is on the first one of the transgressions, on their mistreatment of the poor. And here's the thing, Amos isn't alone in this theme. In fact, if we trace this through scripture, we find it's clearly one of God's favorite topics. From Moses, from the Psalms, from nearly every prophet, we hear that the poor must be cared for. For example, we read about specific provisions that were to be taken to ensure that the poor were fed. There were constitutional guarantees that guarded against long-term generational poverty, including the absolute forgiveness of debts and the returning of property rights every 50 years. We read that God takes up the cause of the poor and the disenfranchised. We read that religious observances like feasts and even fastings are pointless if we're not living just lives and taking care of the poor. Amos is not alone in trumpeting this theme. And by the time Amos gets to the passages we read this morning, he's in high gear. So in 2.6, he declares that the Israelite elites have mistreated the poor. He repeats this again in chapter 5, verses 7, 11 through 13. Then in chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, he declares that they're going to be judged for it. And finally, he fully unleashes himself in 18 through 24 of chapter 5, the second passage we read. So in that passage, really in both passages collected, there are at least five important points that Amos wants to make sure we get. Now, you, you may think of others, but there are at least five, and I don't want us to leave without this. We're going to have some application points at the end, but first of all, we're going to pick them apart, and I want to identify at least five things that we have to get. And when I say we, I may mean especially we. Point number one, God will assess everyone's behavior. In Amos 2.6, God says that he will not, quote, revoke the punishment end quote, for their transgressions. The Hebrew here literally says that God will not relent. 
He will not turn back. In other words, he's going to deliver the punishment that their transgressions deserve. And in 521, he makes his attitude clear, right? God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. He's made his assessment, and it's, it ain't good. If you need motivation to add this theme to your game plan for your life, look no further, right? Now, the idea that God will assess our behavior is not a popular idea in today's religion. I think we like to imagine God as the best version of ourselves. In our best version, we'd be kind to everyone. So this must be how God feels. I had a conversation last year with a young person that I had known this person growing up, and they came to talk to me about some spiritual stuff, and they were talking about some stuff that was going on in their life, and you know, other stuff that they're seeing, and they made one of those, really phrased it this way, but the topic was, why is there suffering? And they made, the sta- they made the statement, it's not fair. And I said, why do you say that? And their response was perfect. It was classic. It's exactly how we think. They said, if I were all powerful, I would never allow that to happen. And that for this person was the ultimate argument in their minds. Because I wouldn't do something, surely God wouldn't, because he's a better version of me. Which, of course, the Bible makes clear is utterly not the case. I read an article recently, written by an atheist, by the way, who was lamenting the fact, listen to this, that as a culture, we had not learned the right lessons from the 20th century. The author was arguing that we still nurture the naive idea that we're all okay and that we all really deserve to be given the benefit of the doubt repeatedly. Then the author went on to talk about Hitler and Stalin and Cambodia's Pol Pot to make the point that there is evil in the world that deserves to be punished. God will assess our behavior. The idea, of course, is in keeping with the God of justice. And it's clearly a recurring theme in the Bible, even in the New Testament. God will judge us. Second point that Amos wants to make sure we don't miss, at least part of the standard for assessing our behavior, a part of what God uses to measure us, is our treatment of the poor and needy. In chapter 2, that passage we read, it begins like this. He's explaining his anger and he says, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. That's Amos's point. God is going to bring judgment against us because we have treated the poor very badly. In our case, it's mostly by neglect, isn't it? Now, some of you have already realized that Jesus makes this point in a really powerful way. Toward the end of his life, he kind of illustrates this. In Matthew 21, he's talking mostly to his followers. And he says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, when things come to an end, this is an image of the day of the Lord, remember that. And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, an image of assessment and judgment. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, we won't go through the whole thing, but just listen to what he says to those on his right. Most of you know this, but I want you to hear the why. He says, 
Ah, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Cheers and applause. Then this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, I love this, saying, thanks for the credit, Lord, but when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, listen to with whom Jesus identifies himself and to what degree. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. At least part of the standard for assessing our behavior will be how we have treated the poor and needy. Third thing Amos wants to make sure we get, hoping that God will intervene on our behalf when we don't intervene for the poor is a false hope. Hoping that God will intervene on our behalf when we don't intervene for the poor and needy is a false hope. If we're trusting God's going to take care of us when we don't care for the poor and needy, that's a false hope. This is where we began in chapter 5. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord was the perfect image for those folks who believed that they were righteous and good. That's the day when God makes it all right and he's going to come. He's going to do his thing for us. Because we're the good guys. We set our alarm, got our kids all dressed and ready. We're at church at 11 o'clock. The gateway. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, the hearer, you've got to understand, that's got to be shocking. Like, what? Why, whoa? Did I, I must have, what did he say? I must have misheard that. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Wait, what? Of course we want the day of It's darkness, not light, for you. As if a man fled from a lion, you know, the world is a tough place. It's like a lion, only to be confronted with a bear. Or went into their house, leaned against the wall because it's storming outside and now the, the shelter of God has come and then he gets bit by a serpent. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? For those who do not attend to the poor and needy, this will not be a good time. Hoping that God will intervene on our behalf when we don't intervene for the poor and needy is a false hope. Fourth thing Amos wants to make sure we get, hoping that our religion will help us, or even hoping that God cares about our religiousness at all, when we don't care for the poor and needy, is again a false hope. Got that? Hoping that our religion will help us when we don't care for the poor and needy is a false hope. I hate, I despise your feasts. Those were the high times when they got together to express themselves religiously. This was their celebration of their history. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. What? Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't even look at them. Hoping that our religion will help us, or even hoping that God cares about our religiousness. When we don't care for the poor and needy is a false hope. The fifth thing Amos wants to make sure we get, our God is a God of justice, and he wants to see our lives and our habits reflect his justice. He expects us to open our lives to people in need. Chapter 5, verse 24, especially, take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters. Let that be the thing that spills out of your life and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream.
the mystery writer Dorothy Sayer. Some of you are familiar with her writing. She was also a devoted Christian. Dorothy Sayer offered one of the most compelling explanations of the moral law of God I've ever heard. She pointed out that in our society there are two kinds of laws. There's the law of the stop sign and there's the law of the fire. Stay with me, this is a good one. The law of the stop sign is a law that identifies when traffic is heavy on a certain street and as a result the police department or the city council decides to erect a stop sign. Then they legislate that stop sign. They also decide if you run that stop sign it will cost you $25 or more. If the traffic changes and gets heavier they can up the ante so that the fine becomes $50 or $75 or $100. Or if they build a highway around the city, traffic is alleviated, they can take the stop sign down or they can reduce the penalty. They can make it $10 if you go through it. The police department or city council controls the law of the stop sign. But then she said there's also the law of the fire. And the law of the fire says if you put your hand in a fire, you'll get burned. I love this. Now imagine, Sayers says, that all of the legislators of all of the nations of the entire world gathered in one great assembly, and they voted unanimously that from here on out, fire will no longer burn. The first man or woman who left that assembly and put his or her hand in the fire would discover that the law of fire is different than the law of the stop sign. Bound up in the nature of fire itself is the penalty for abusing it. So, Sayers says, the moral law of God is like the law of the fire. You never break God's law. You just break yourself on it. God can't reduce the penalty because the penalty for breaking the law is bound up in the law itself. God's demand for justice, his universal system of justice is just this way. And our treatment of those in need is a part of God's law. It does not matter how busy we are. or how important our lives are. God's law stands. So our spiritual health depends on our compliance. We need to add this to our game plan. Okay, so to help us before we go, I've come up with four ideas, you may have others, that are practical applications for making this part of our game plan. So let me give you four thoughts. It may spur other thoughts in you for making this a part of our game plan. Thought number one, Make a plan to give away more this year than last year. So it's tax season. You know pretty much what you gave away last year. Some of you have already done your taxes. You're really good, better than Diane and I. Go look at your charitable giving. If you haven't done them yet, in the next couple of weeks you will. Hopefully, go look at your charitable giving. You know what you gave last year. I want to encourage you to make a plan to give more this year than last year. Now, I'd love for you to consider Gateway to be one of the places that you gave to, but I don't care about that. If all of us determine to give what God wants us to give, Gateway's going to be fine. Whatever causes God raises to your heart and mind, give more this year than you did last year. Basil the Great is a theologian and a bishop in what is modern-day Turkey in the 4th century. I want you to hear what he wrote. This is a great quote. Basil said, The bread you do not use is the bread of the hungry. The extra garment hanging in your wardrobe is the garment of the person who's naked. The shoes you do not wear are the shoes of the one who is barefoot. The money you keep locked away is the money of the poor. Second idea, as a family or as an individual, use some holiday time during this next year to serve the needy. 
We're coming up to spring break in a couple of months, spring break or Thanksgiving or Christmas or summer vacation, help at a homeless shelter or at a local food bank or find a walk for a cause that you believe in and drag your rear end and your family if you have a family. I spoke with someone recently who used a long weekend a few years ago to visit a child that they support and have supported for years. I spoke to someone else this week who has used their summertime to invite a young relative who's at risk into their home and they live with them for the whole summer. They provide for them. This challenge is especially the case for those of you who have children. Let them see you open your home and your life and your pocketbook to those in need. I challenge our missions team. If you don't know Kevin Bellino, get to know Kevin Bellino. We have an excited and an exciting new, new missions team, and I challenge our missions team to help us come up with ideas for how we can invest our break times. Use some holiday time during this year to serve the needy. Third, go on a short-term mission trip. If you need ideas, speak to Alex York, who was up here a few moments ago, or Kevin Bellino, Nice-looking, big young man, got a beard, and he'd taken a trip to the Dominican Republic this summer. Go. It's awesome. Go on a short-term mission trip. It will get you out of your little box. Fourth, if you're discouraged about your finances today, resist financial fear. Guard yourself against it. Fear causes you to shrink and close your hands. It inhibits God's ability to flow through you. Don't allow your hands to close up. All right, Ambrose was another theologian, church leader in the fourth century. He wrote this. He said, there is your brother, naked and crying, and you stand confused over the choice of an attractive floor covering. Evidently, they were worried about their kitchen floors even in the fourth century. Look, this is work we must do. This must be part of our game plan. And we, especially we, we're ending now, so don't go to sleep. We have to be intentional about this. First of all, we have so many resources to bring to the needy. Secondly, we must be intentional because we live extremely insulated lives. We have almost completely removed ourselves from poverty just by virtue of where we live. The average street person in D.C. cannot afford to buy the home next to yours. I'm just thinking, probably. We don't like to be around grief even, unless we have to. Our lives are very insulated. Think about it. For many of us, we often console ourselves, even when faced with the need within our own extended families. We remember all the bad choices they made, as if that exonerates us from having to help. We must keep our eyes and our hearts open to the needs around us. A few weeks ago, we talked here on Sunday morning about how dramatically the early Jesus movement grew. Some of you, if you're here, you may remember that. Ultimately, the Jesus movement essentially converted the Roman Empire. Well, you've heard that many times, I'm sure, and on some Discovery Channel special. That's, that's partly true. Uh, it, it didn't really stick. Here's what I mean. Constantine and around 323, 25, he became a Christian and he officially announced that Christianity was the religion of Rome. But subsequent emperors 
tried to undo that and did to some degree. In fact, the emperor that followed Constantine was an emperor named Julian. And Julian was the Roman emperor from 360 to 363 AD after Jesus. And he tried to revive paganism. He wrote a, a famous letter to pagan priests uh, really, as, as it was coaching them in a letter of encouragement, literally, you know, let's take back the country. And there's a very famous passage in it that I want you to hear. Julian said this, It is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians, the Galileans, because Jesus was from Galilee, and he calls them impious because they don't worship the gods of our forefathers, the Roman gods. They worship this one God. And that arrogant and impious. They don't worship Caesar. They worship this one crazy God. And, and he's, he's a dead God, evidently. And they eat him. It's disgraceful that the impious Christians, the impious Galileans, support, listen to this, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Therefore, all men see that our people lack aid from us, and they run to the Christians. And in so doing, they converted the Roman Empire. So do you understand that in the war between Rome and the Christians, the ones without the swords won the war? And they won because of their profound generosity. Because they took care of the most desperate. So those of us who wring our hands about our culture, let's get busy taking care of the needy. Those are the kind of people that Jesus raises up. People who care for the poor and needy. God, make us that kind of people. Let's pray. Father, again, these are words, mere words, only words, worse than that. Ramblings. Unless you Fill us and make this the intention of our hearts. Unless you move us and inspire us and change us and draw us out from our lives, out from behind our garage doors, out from our boxes, and into places of need. Now look, Lord, we don't even really know how because we are busy. And we do have a lot of responsibilities. We don't want to just drive downtown and hand somebody some money. But, Lord, I know that it is your desire that our hearts would be opened. I thank you so much for the people who are part of this community who have made it a regular part of their lives to go to another part of the world and work with those unfortunate, and they give money to those causes, and people who have supported children, people who have adopted children into their homes, people who have met needs of their neighbors, people who have, out of their own resources, Lord, we, who have paid for other people's rent or mortgage, I thank you. Continue, Lord, to inspire us to excel in that. to be a people about whom our critics would say, it's disgraceful how much they care for the poor. We pray most of all, Jesus, that you would break our heart with the things that break your heart. So today, we give you our lives. 
we ask you to take them and we also ask on Wednesday when we have forgotten that you will remind us that today we said yes we're in in Jesus name we pray Amen if you have some need that deserves prayer don't leave without it there, there's a group of people over here who will pray for you after the service if you know someone in your family or in your neighborhood or someone who lives in Los Angeles or Detroit or a friend who is a mess uh, get someone to pray with you and for them this morning before you leave that might be the first step in us uh, taking care of the needy and before we go home Let's stand and just sing that one more time as a prayer. Take my life and let it be. Let's stand, choir. Okay, Mike. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord. Peace, everyone.